We're going to start to read at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start to read at verse 9, but to, to preface that passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul begins this chapter with an emphasis on the fact that his preaching to the Corinthians was not with words of man's wisdom or with excellency of speech, but that through his weakness and his fear and his trembling, it was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And uh, it's possible, this is only speculation, it's possible that the, Paul was feeling this conviction very strongly because if you look into the book of Acts and the, look at the, try to parallel the timeline of Paul's travels in the book of Acts, you'll see that when he arrived at Corinth, I think it's about Acts 17, 18, when he arrived at Corinth, he'd just come from Athens. And in Athens, he'd been at a place called Mars Hill, which was where the best and brightest and the, the educated and the academics all got together and discussed whatever was the interesting topic of the day and debated backwards and forwards with their human reasoning. And in the natural, that was Paul's arena. Paul's an incredibly educated man and from what we can work out, a brilliant man. And so perhaps at Mars Hill, and again, this is pure speculation, he felt like he was in a place where he was able to persuade them with his abilities, with his intellect. And we know that from what we can read, there was a few people responded, but a lot thought he was foolish. And some said, well, go away. We'll talk to you again another day when we find you interesting. And it's from there he comes to Corinth and is possibly... I guess, assuming he had humanity like yours and mine, is challenged by the fact that it's not going to be his brilliance that's going to make an impact, but that it's the power and the Spirit of God. Amen. And so in the beginning of chapter 2, he emphasizes the Spirit of God and the power of God. We start to read in verse 9, he says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That verse is often quoted and misinterpreted to mean that we can't know the things of God. But when it talks about the heart of man in verse 9, it's talking about the natural understanding of man. Because then in verse 10, it starts with the word but. It says, but God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not of the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This passage is part of an ongoing comparison 
between the carnal and the spiritual. It has not entered into the heart of man, the natural carnal heart of man, but by the Spirit, these things are revealed to us. Paul says that we know natural things by our natural spirit. He said we cannot know the things of God, but by the Spirit of God. Now, that doesn't exclude the Word, but if you want to understand the Word, you need the Spirit. Verse 15 says that he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. That's not a statement that somebody who's spiritual is unaccountable or unanswerable to anybody else, but rather the context shows us that when somebody is spiritual, natural thinking and carnal thinking cannot comprehend it because it does not make sense to them. And with the help of the Lord this morning, and I mean that sincerely, I don't just say that for something to say, I want to preach to you about the need for a spiritual church. The need for a spiritual church. Let's pray. Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father, we need you. Lord, we know we need you, but we need you more than we understand. And Lord, so this morning... Lord, your anointing is heavy in your house today. Lord, you desire to do a work amongst your people, Lord, and it is our desire that we would allow you to do that work. And so, Lord, I pray that even now, Lord, as your Spirit's moving on us, that our hearts would be yielded, that they would be surrendered, Lord, that we would be willing to allow your Word and your Spirit to probe into our hearts, Lord God, and to bring about that which you desire. I ask you for your anointing, Lord God, to deliver your Word. I ask you, Lord, not for the demonstration of man's wisdom, Lord, but of your spirit and of power, Lord God, we pray. Father, we ask you, Lord, be glorified in us and through us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There has never been a time when the world needed a church that was spiritual more than they do right now. There has also never been a time when the church needed to be spiritual for its own sake, like right now. Amen. The warnings that we find in the epistles to Timothy of the absence of genuine spirituality in the church of the last days, we know are written to you and I. And they are written because if we do not take heed to them, we will fulfill them. Let me say that again. If we do not take heed to the warnings that are found that Paul writes to Timothy, we will fulfill those warnings. If we do not fight to be the children of God, we will become prisoners to a powerless religion. I love to come to church here. I do. I've been in this church in Perth for over 20 years now, and there's nowhere I'd rather come to worship. There's no group of people I'd rather come to worship with. Love to worship together. Love the move of the Spirit that we experience so regularly. Love the fact that the gifts of the Spirit operate among us. But these things do not make us a spiritual church. These things do not make us a spiritual church. The word spiritual in the New Testament comes from the Greek word pneumatikos, which Vine's Expository Dictionary says that it includes the idea of invisibility and of power, but what the the author of the dictionary says that I found interesting was that this word does not exist in the Gospels, but 
W.E. Vine, I think was his initials, makes the statement that it is in fact an after-Pentecost word. It's exactly what his dictionary says. To be spiritual happens after Pentecost. In other words, until you are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you are not able to be spiritual. You cannot be spiritual in a New Testament biblical sense. Now, let me qualify that by saying I believe and I know that there are people that have faith in God that are not filled with the Spirit, as the Scripture says, who are still affected by the Spirit because they love God in the understanding that they have. And so you never disqualify somebody's faith or their love for God. But until you are filled with that Spirit, until it indwells you and you become His temple and by adoption you become His child and He becomes your father, you cannot be spiritual in a biblical sense. There's a lot of different kinds of spirituality. There's all, so, there's all kinds of spirituality you can be that I don't advise. But in a biblical sense, without the infilling of the Holy Ghost, you cannot be spiritual. Another Greek lexicon, and I'm not trying to... I've just spoken about Paul not using knowledge, and I'm making a reference to a few reference books this morning. But Thayer's Greek lexicon defines spiritual as the condition of one who is both filled and governed by the Spirit of the Lord. Filled and governed. So it is possible that we can be filled with the Spirit and be carnal. I'll say that again. It is possible to be filled with the Spirit and to be carnal. If I do not submit my life to God and His will in everything, then He does not govern my life. And I am carnal, not spiritual. It does not matter how much I speak in tongues. It does not matter how much I even pray. If I run my life, I'm carnal. I'm not spiritual. The carnal are self-deceived into thinking that they are spiritual when in reality they do their own will every day and not the will of the Father. Amen. The Corinthian church was not short of the supernatural. In fact, Paul says in the first chapter that they came behind in no gift. They had it going on. They had signs and wonders. They had the miraculous. And 1 Corinthians 12 through to 14 is the textbook that we teach on spiritual gifts from. They were a supernatural church, but not a spiritual church. That's why even people that are in sin can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. See, we, we have trouble with understanding how that works because in our thinking, if somebody performs a miracle, they must be close to God. But that's not true. That means that at some point God has imparted a gift to that person and they have learned how to operate in that gift without necessarily walking with God. I could, to be transparent, I've stood in a pulpit, I've stood in this pulpit and preached great messages from time to time not always, when I've not necessarily been spiritually prepared as I ought to be. Because God anoints His Word and responds to the needs of His people even when the vessel might not be everything it ought to be. The church at Corinth was supernatural, but they were carnal. 
to, under, to explain what I'm talking about, let's read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just ignore that chapter break, pretend it's not there. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, And I, brethren, Paul's still speaking, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes or babies in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto or up until this point, you've not been able to bear it and you're still not able. For yet you are carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I'm of Paul, another I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he that planteth, sorry, neither is he that planteth anything, Neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that plantereth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. Or we might better understand that as you are God's field and you are God's building. Paul said, I can't speak to you spiritually because you're carnal. Strong language. He said, you're still infants. You're still only able to drink milk. That's all you're capable of at the moment. That's all you've grown to. He wasn't saying, understand this, he wasn't saying they hadn't been born again. Because if they were infants, they had new life. But he was saying, you aren't growing up. He said, between the times I've been and come and gone, you're on the same diet. You're still the same. You haven't changed. Now, there's a place for milk. Don't misunderstand me. There is. The Scripture encourages childlikeness in some areas. Luke 18 and 17, the Lord said, Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. In First Peter, the apostle said, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. The problem with Corinth was that they were having the milk, but they weren't growing. There hadn't been any growing. Children, we often speak about how the Lord said, you've got to be like a little child, because there's a lot of qualities about children that God desires for us as his children. Children easily forgive. Children have simple faith. Children don't complicate things a lot. Life's a lot more simple when you're a child, and there is a lot of parallels that we can say, yes, that's how we ought to be as the children of God. But children also have a short attention span. Children are easily upset and overwhelmed. See the little kids, something goes wrong, they just drop on the floor and start to cry. It's all too hard. Somebody took their toy. Mum said they couldn't have another chocolate. Whatever the trauma was. They're easily overwhelmed. They need just about everything done for them. Their focus is on pleasure and play, not responsibility. And their immaturity means that usually they think about themselves first. So not everything about children needs to be in the church. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, Brethren, be not children in understanding. He said, In malice, be children. In other words, you forgive, you don't carry hurts, you don't want to deliberately hurt somebody else. I mean, kids hit each other with their toys and stuff, but if you see a one- or a two-year-old that's really malicious, you think we have a real problem here. You know, when they do that, they're not really thinking about, you know, viciously harming somebody. If they are, I suggest you get some help for your children. But he said, in malice, be children, but in understanding, be men. In other words, be mature. It's not male and female, it's maturity. In malice be children, but understanding be men. In the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he said, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, and be strong. Now, that's King James, that's Old English. The scripture's not encouraging us to quit. It's talking about standing. It's talking about not being able to be moved easily, being committed, being focused, being consecrated. And in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul was saying, milk is okay as a part of your diet. But he said, it's about time you started sinking your teeth into something with a bit more substance. He said, you need to be growing into that life where you are not only filled with the Spirit, but you're walking in it and you're governed by it. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that everybody that uses milk or everybody that receives milk, that's what they're living on, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for they're just a baby. More modern translation of that verse says, for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Now, if you've just started your journey with God, enjoy the milk and let God help you to grow. But if you've been here a while and you're born again some years ago and you still got milk teeth, God's talking to you this morning. If there was ever a time that we needed to die to our flesh and live in the Spirit, it's now. As a church, in the world that we live in, we will not survive if we are carnal. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look, if you're still there, you probably still are. 1 Corinthians 3 and 9. says this, for we are laborers together with God. There's the, that, that together includes two directions. It includes the people of God being together and God also being added to that environment. You are God's husband and you are God's building. Laborers together here in this verse. It's translated from the Greek word synergos, S-U-N-E-R-G-O-S, which is where we get the English word synergy from. Now, if we live in Western Australia, when somebody says synergy, the first thing we think of is the people that send us a bill every two months, the power company. But the word synergy means the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effect that is greater than the sum of their separate effects. Now, to simplify that down a little bit more and apply it to us as a church, it means that when we as God's people come together, interact, cooperate, work together, that somehow it releases a power that is greater 
than if we were to add together our individual power. To break that down a step further, we've all grown up going to school. Hopefully most of us have got basic maths. We have learned our entire lives that two and two is four. And that's true. And if I'm getting change at the shop, I want to know how much change I'm getting. My parents always taught me, count your change. Don't trust the person at the counter. Not because they're necessarily dishonest, they make mistakes. See, it works in reverse. There's times I've been given too much change and I've had to give it back. So if you count your change, make sure your integrity flows in two directions. That's not even part of my message. But So when you take one group of two and you put it together with another group of two, we understand that gives us a group of four. Haven't lost anybody with that? Okay, that's good. But the principle behind synergy is that somehow two and two can equal five. It's not mathematical. It's not scientific. It's not natural. And in a kingdom environment, it is spiritual. That somehow when you add things together, the product of that addition, that union, that coming together produces an output that is greater than if we just consider them as individuals. Only God can do that. Only God is able to do that. I know it doesn't work mathematically, but it works spiritually. Something happens supernaturally when we are combined in the presence and power of God that destroys natural maths and natural principles. There is a synergy that the people of God can have. I say can have because it's not automatic. It doesn't happen automatically. That word, that Greek word synergos, was used by Paul to describe or to refer to those that worked with him in the churches in the New Testament. If you've got software or a strong concordance and you want to look it up, you'll find that in the New Testament it talks about the people that labored with him in Rome, the people that labored with him in Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and to Philemon. That Greek word is used referring to Timothy and Barnabas and all these different people. He said, these are the people. And he might not have, he didn't speak too much English, obviously, and might not have understand synergy, but the principle was the same. He was saying, these people, when we work together in the kingdom, something happens that is greater than the natural realm. When I'm working with Timothy and Titus and all these other names that we can't pronounce, he said, there is something that is supernatural that is happening. And so when we come together, what makes that possible? It is the Spirit of God. But you cannot add two carnal people and two carnal people and the Spirit of God and get five. You'll get four every time. But when you add spiritual people with spiritual people and the Spirit of God, you defy natural addition. And God turns it into multiplication. And somehow God is able to ordain and declare that two plus two can equal whatever He wants it to. You look at maths in the Scripture, you look at times that God so often defied what we would call the odds. You know, odds isn't really the right word to use because odds refers to risk and gambling. There were no risks with God. He was going to win every time. And there were so many times when he took that which was small and destroyed that which was large or took that which was impossible and made it possible because people trusted him, obeyed him, united with him and saw things come to pass 
that could not be understood understood by the natural man. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. A catalyst. Getting into difficult areas of science, and my daughter's very quick to pick me up when I get things wrong with science. But this is from the dictionary, so she can fight with those at Oxford. A catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. Is that okay? Is that close? Good. I passed. So in other words, a catalyst is something that in chemistry or possibly other environments is added that makes things happen faster and stronger and more powerful, but it never changes. That's the Spirit of God. When God is added to us, things can happen more powerfully, quicker, stronger, greater. He never changes, but he can be the catalyst to bring that about. Amen. You see, what is a carnal Christian, apart from the fact that's an oxymoron, it doesn't really make sense. You can't be carnal and be a Christian. Those two words don't go together. But we use that expression. You see, we look at Ephesians chapter 5, not Ephesians, sorry, Galatians chapter 5, and it gives us the list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we recognize it's written to a church, and when it lists the works of the flesh, it talks about murder and hatred and adultery and fornication and witchcraft and all these things. And we sometimes can be deceived into thinking that those are the things that, you know, Christians are going to still fall into from time to time. Those are not the behaviors of carnal Christians. They are the behaviors of sinners. Because the Scripture says that if we do these things, we're not going to heaven. It says you do those things, you won't be able to enter in. A carnal Christian is a Christian who is not surrendered to the will of God. And somebody that's been born again of water and spirit... But week in and week out is living their will, their life, their goals, their purpose, their pleasure, their satisfaction. And then they wonder why I don't feel like I have the power of God in my life. The church is not here so that when you come on Sunday morning, you get some kind of injection of strength or, or some vitamins or you, you drag yourself barely alive in and somebody slaps an oxygen mask on your face and you come back to life and <gasps> I can make it another week. The church is here for services and get-togethers that God can speak to us and transform us, not for Sunday, for Monday through Saturday. And the only way you'll know that power is if His will is the priority Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, and Saturday morning. And even if you haven't, look, I understand that when I come to this place and I've had a hard week, I'm plugging in. I get that. There are times I get to the house of God, and I'm like, God, I need you. I need your touch. I need your strength. I need your refreshing. But if this is the only day that you're thinking about that, then you're carnal. I don't want to see a show of hands, but... If you haven't even thought about what God might do today during the week or prayed about it, you're carnal. You think, don't worry about thinking about church or what God might want to say to you on a Sunday. Come to church and wonder why, well, I didn't get much out of that service. What'd you put in? 
Were you praying during the night? God, I need to hear from you. You know what's going on in my life. You know the things I don't have answers for, the problems that are too big, too hard, too great, too far. You can do it. But it's His will. If we are going to be spiritual, if we are going to be pneumaticos, that Greek word, then He has to govern my life every day. Because you can come to this house on a Sunday and you can run the aisles and you can speak in tongues and you can heal the sick and you can do all that stuff and be as carnal as the person out there that doesn't even know the name of Jesus Christ. And that does not make sense to us. But that's what the book says. We need a spiritual church. This world needs a spiritual church. It needs people who are dying every day. It needs people who are getting up every morning and saying, Lord, I offer myself to you a living sacrifice. I present my body holy, not as in holy separated, but holy as in everything. You cannot negotiate terms of surrender with God. There are two terms that God accepts, everything or nothing. Anything in between is you thinking that you've got to deal with God and God's thinking they'll wake up sooner or later. And we wonder why we don't have strength and we don't have power and we don't have victory. We need to be spiritual. When we come to this house, and I feel this very strongly this morning, when we come to this house, we need to hear from God. When I stand in that pulpit, I don't want to try to impress people. I want God to speak to his people. And if you're a preacher in this place or a preacher that's learning to preach, you need to make sure you've got a hold of God when you step in this pulpit. You know, Isaiah said he was in the presence of the Lord in chapter 6 and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. The angels were spinning around doing their holy, holy thing. And he said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And the scripture says that God got an angel, I believe it was, to go down to the altar and get a hot coal and touch that thing on his lips and says, I've made you clean. I've made you pure. I've made you able to be in my presence. And when we preach the word of God, we don't literally need a fiery coal, but we need to be in that place of his altar where he touches us. And we preach the word of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, Jesus. Oh, God. Jesus. 133rd Psalm, and I'm wrapping up with this cast. If you could come to the piano. Many of you can quote this, but it says, A song of degrees of David. Behold, how good. And how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. And anointing, anointing is a fascinating subject. In the Old Testament, it was pretty visible. Some wild-eyed prophet comes walking out of the heat haze of the day with a cow horn full of oil. You knew somebody was getting anointed. He saw that priest, he's got all that oil running through his hair, as it says, under his clothes and, and down to the edge of his garments. It's like, yeah, he's just had an experience with God. In the New Testament, we're kind of glad we're not getting around pouring bottles of oil on each other. But we use this passage of Scripture in the Psalms to preach about unity and how important unity is, and it is. Unity is very important, it's very powerful. But you see, 
Unity is more than the absence of conflict. Unity is more than just being pleasant to one another and trying not to hurt one another's feelings. We ought to do those things. You should try not to hurt people's feelings. You should always try to be nice to each other. But the world does that. Unity, spiritual unity, in a biblical sense, is synergy. It's when spiritual people combine together with the anointing of the Spirit of God and the power of God is released. God's anointing is so much more than just keeping us all friends. <laughs> it's so much more than just being able to say, I don't have aught in my heart against my brother or my sister. And if you do, you need to address that. You need to repent. But it's more than that. It's genuine biblical spirituality. It's where we get in synergy with God. And two plus two becomes five, becomes six, becomes seven. And that anointing runs. You see, anointing, when you read the example here, there's a reason that David wrote about it coming from Aaron's head down to the edge. The scripture says we grow up into his fullness, book of Ephesians. He is the head. We are his body growing up. And so if we are submitted to him, we can get under the flow. But if we're born again but live in our own will, there's no oil. There's no flow. And we drag ourselves into church on a Sunday morning and think, gee, I hope the preacher's good today. I hope the Spirit of God moves because I really need some... And there's nothing wrong with wanting God to touch us. But that's such a, such a poor version of the life that God wants us to have. We need a spiritual church. It happens with spiritual people. And I'm not saying everybody's carnal and backslidden. That's not the point of my message this morning. The point is to challenge us, to stir us, I love the fact that people come to the prayer room before service. I know people pray. I know that's one of the reasons we have the move of the Spirit we do in His house. But I also know that some of us are a whole lot weaker than we should be. We're malnourished. We're struggling. We're not spiritual. Again, it's not spiritual. Holy people, you know, just dwelling in a rarefied air with God. Spirituality is being filled with his spirit, being surrendered to his will. Not my will, but thine. Not just Sunday mornings. And I, I've grown up in church, and I know I'm going on a little bit longer, but it's only quarter past 11. I've grown up in church. I know what it's like to be having the kind of week where you know you haven't really been serving the Lord and come into church Sunday morning, hit the prayer room, and just try to have a quick bath. Spiritually, Lord, please forgive me for the week. Lord, I know I've had a bad attitude and I've done some things I shouldn't have done. And Thank you, Jesus, and walk out into church. Anybody ever been there? Or am I the only carnal person in this house? <laughs> I know what that's like. I also know the difference in my life when I choose the other option. When, my, when I walk into that prayer room Sunday morning and it is a part of the flow of my week, it's a whole new world. Because when you, you know, and if, look, if you come Sunday morning, you need to make some things right with God, get in the prayer room, please. 
But when you get in there and it's, it's 9.45 and, you know, people are praying and you can't, where is God? And you're trying to catch up in the fast lane and it's like, that is not the life that God wants you to have. He wants us to be spiritual. But it means you've got to die. It means not my will, Lord, but thine every day. Every day. Let's stand together this morning. And I preach this out of condemnation. If it comes with some conviction, I don't have a problem with that. Conviction brings us closer to the Lord. But if you're interested in being a spiritual person, being part of a spiritual church, I want you to find a place at this altar this morning and we're going to take some time and we're going to pray. Say, God, I want everything that you want me. I don't want to be in my will. I don't want to be a carnal Christian.